I grow up, I want to be an engineer. When I grow up, I want to be an author. When I grow up, I want to be a fine art thief. When I grow up, I want to be a When I grow up, I want to be a player. When I grow up, I want to be a player. When I grow up, I want to be a player. Welcome to My Dilettante Life, where we hear from people who have cool or unusual jobs about their professional lives. I'm podcast host and resident dilettante, Hannah Binder. So today we've got Chris Cummings here to talk about uh, your career so far in the world of art, Uh, not as an artist per se, but which I've already actually interviewed an artist in one of the earlier episodes of the podcast. But today we're talking about it kind of from the other perspective in that you, as I understand, have worked by and large in art galleries and dealing in art. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I, I basically refer to myself as an art dealer. Anyone working in an art gallery, I have to, as a child of the 90s, refer back to everyone's favorite Charlotte from Sex and the City um, as like the very stereotypical idea I have in mind whenever someone says that they are an art dealer or work in an art gallery. So just to give you kind of an idea of the baseline assumptions that I've made about your career to date. So getting started, do you want to tell us just a little bit about your background, how you got into um, working in art, and if it's something you maybe dreamed about as a kid? Um, Well, I grew up in a family of artists, so I always had a strong appreciation and affinity for art. Um, I kind of fell into the back end. I had moved to New Orleans, and all of my friends worked at galleries as assistants to the art dealers there on Royal Street. So I got a job as what I refer to as a gallery grunt, where if it was anything dirty or heavy, they would get me. (laughs) And from there, I just sort of worked my way up. I um, initially was just kind of cleaning galleries and moving artwork around. Then I started helping rehang when we would be doing new exhibitions. Um, I briefly worked in the frame shop in New Orleans where I was doing a little bit of framing. And after Hurricane Katrina, I was moving to San Diego and my whole resume was just galleries. And um, one of the galleries there basically said, you know, you're a charming individual and quite smart. Let's put you on the floor. And uh, that's when I first started doing consultative work where um, I describe being an art dealer and an art consultant as mass correspondence. I'm either talking to you on the gallery floor, uh, emailing images back and forth on the phone. Um, So just a a lot of talking. (laughs) But it's, I always describe it as the ultimate person-to-person connection. So you'll have an individual who walks into a gallery, they see a work of art, and it's pulling something out in them that they didn't even know was there. So an individual who put their literal blood, sweat, and tears onto this piece of paper is now speaking to this other individual And then they're talking to me about it. So it's just this huge personal connection. So I've had collectors, you know, sobbing on my arms because of works of art. I've had collectors invite me to their children's birthday party because um, when you're talking about artwork, it ends up being so personal. So it, it, it sparks up conversations that you wouldn't have with someone when acquiring a vehicle or, you know, an article of clothing or jewelry. Um, And um, basically just kind of hit the ground running and and did really well on the consultative side. 
I changed hands to a couple different galleries, kind of trying to get to a more prestigious gallery and started up with the, the photographer, Peter Lick, who um, has about 15 locations across the U.S. And um, that was my first gallery, I would say big gallery director position where they had me run their Beverly Hills location. So I moved out to Los Angeles for that. And then later they asked me to take over their flagship location in Las Vegas. And so I moved to Las Vegas and was running Venetian. And it bounced around with that company. I briefly worked with another Los Angeles company um, where we did a lot of international shows. And so we would do Shanghai Art Fair or we would go to um, Art Week in uh, Miami, which is always gruesomely hot. <laughs> so I kind of described my career in the artist art industry as falling up a flight of stairs where things just kind of worked out really well for me. Um, I did find it kind of strange in that the higher I climbed in the industry, there's areas in the art world, especially when you get really, really high up, that just kind of would leave a little bit of a distaste in my mouth. Um, you know, uh, at, at one point I was with a company where we, we literally taught a class on helping wealthy individuals evade taxes through acquiring and selling artwork. And I just, that started to hit the, I don't know, I, 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 I want to be successful, but I want to sleep at night as well. <laughs> um, so actually right now I'm representing a, a pop artist in the desert in Palm Springs. And um, I find that it's a lot easier to represent an artist that you actually like his work, like him as an individual. Um, and, you know, your collectors can feel that. So it, it just makes the whole process a lot better. Sorry, that I feel like is... I feel like I no, that's that's great. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned that class because I think I was just reading something the other day about how, um, yeah, in the art world, there's actually, I guess, a fair amount of like money laundering that goes on and the washing occurs through the purchase of really expensive works of art. Um, so I hadn't really thought about the ethical implications for someone in your position and how um, you would have the ability to kind of see where that was heading and know, and that luckily you have the opportunity to continue doing what you love without feeling like you're selling little bits of your soul every time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear, you know, you, you come from a family of artists. Do you feel like, cause I will say as someone who doesn't really have a lot of experience in art in general, Sometimes I have, I don't even know if I'd call it imposter syndrome because no one thinks of me as like an expert in the world of art. Um, how do you feel about sort of your comfort level coming from that background in comparison to folks who may not have grown up sort of thinking of themselves as, I don't know if you want to say like fluent in art or comfortable with art or um, as appreciators of artistic work? Well, I, I think that's one of the things I love about our work is that it's it's a universal language and there's no right or wrong with it. So if you want to, you know, make art really deep and dark and, you know, really read into it, that, that's available. And if you just want to keep it like light and effervescent and silly and fun, um, I mean, you can you can look at music where you can have like sometimes it's fun to just jump on the dance floor and dance it up to some trashy pop song 
but then also it can be really incredible to sit at an opera or a theater and listen to, you know, one of the great works of classical music or um, that I, I, you know, there's no right or wrong in it. it. There's so many different styles of artwork and medium of artwork, and it's constantly shifting and changing because we as a society are constantly shifting and changing. So I, I find that really interesting. Um, and with artwork, a lot of it is the more you look at it, the more you'll know. The more artwork you're exposed to, um, the most common example I get is people not understanding abstract art. And I always say, you just need to look at more abstract art. And the more abstract art you kind of surround yourself with, you'll start to see things that you didn't really see before, start to be able to differentiate between a skilled artist practicing and maybe an artist who's still learning the ropes. Um, but again, it's, it's just kind of what, which sort of what you want to make of it. I, you know, you have, and even various collectors have different buying motivators. So you have collectors who just love this artist and they just feel closer when they acquire his work and they feel that they're helping this individual's career and allowing them to continue to produce artwork and influence our world and our market. You have collectors who, oh, I love this. It matches my sofa. Uh, collectors who, oh, I love this. And I think the artist is going somewhere. So they're thinking investment minded. Um, so I, I, that's one of the things about the industry that I just truly loved, where there, there really is no right or wrong. It's just, it's just what you love and what that artwork is doing for you. Um, I continue to buy various little pieces from some known artists, some unknown artists, um, just because if I see something and I, I, I like it and I can afford it. I typically will be impulsive and buy it. <laughs> That's really um, freeing to hear. So thank you for um, validating that, you know, the kind of openness of art appreciation in its various forms. Would you say that you have kind of like a role model in your work or someone who you, um, who's helped you get to where you are? Um. Hmm, it's interesting. There, there was a period of time where I really idolized Larry Gagosian, who he's the world's most successful art dealer and started Gagosian Gallery. Um, but again, as I climbed higher in that world, I started to find a little bit of a discomfort. Now, granted, I've never worked for Gagosian, and so I can't touch on that world per se. Because our world, it does have a number of various layers as an onion. Like that gallery will fly in billionaires on a private jet to see the show. <laughs> I, I have not dabbled in that world. I was much more on uh, the commercial side dealing with, um, you know, affluent individuals of society. But I think the highest work of art that I had sold was around 250,000 um, as opposed to, you know, some of that massive things. Um, so I had, I had admired him for a while. There actually was this one dealer that I really admired and then I worked for him. And it really bursted the bubble for me, um, which at the time was really sad, but now I look back at kind of in, in a weird way, it's liberating. Um, I, yeah, I, I guess my, my big one, it kind of, after working for him and it's sort of, you know, when you get to peek behind the curtain and sometimes seeing how the sausage is made. <laughs> um, that, that was around when I had left Los Angeles and was kind of undone with this side of the art world and really wanted to pursue artists that I believed in and, and um, felt ethical representing. Well, and I mean, I wonder if it's kind of, yeah, like you said, had 
maybe sort of a freeing effect where you could find your own voice in um, working in art rather than feeling like you had to kind of follow this person who you had admired for so long? Like, did you feel like it kind of forced you to become your own person in in your profession? I think it made me realize that, um, you know, maybe I was pursuing or valuing, at least for myself, um, not kind of the, the proper, you know, instead of maybe trying to chase after the most prestigious artist or the prestigious gallery, chase after the artist that I would like to see succeed or um, because that's one thing about the art world that is really sad is there's millions of incredibly talented individuals who will live, produce and die and their names will never be known and the artwork will never be fully appreciated or exhibited. And, you know, maybe it'll be a collection that they keep to themselves or they share with some of their friends and family. But other than that, it never sees a wider audience. Um, But then in the same respect, I think there's, very loud voices in the art world today that I don't think will be around in 50 or a hundred years. You know, I I think there's various artists who, um, you know, maybe they're very much of this moment, but I don't think they're really leaving much of of a legacy. You're listening to My Dilettante Life. I'm your host, Hannah Binder, and today I'm interviewing art dealer, Chris Cummings. So what has surprised you about working in this field? I would say that the, how the highs can be so high and the lows can be so low because it, it can be a really fulfilling job. Um, I remember I was a young art dealer and I was working at this gallery in San Diego and there was a, a young artist that the gallery had picked up who's around the same age as me, who's the same name, had the same name and we kind of became friends and I always was really excited when I would sell one of his pieces, uh, partly because I, you know, he was my friend. I really liked him, but the money he earned like from that sale was life altering to him. When some of these other big artists, it was like, Oh, just throw it on the pile. And it always made me feel so excited and good when I would have a big sale of his artwork because I knew how much it really was altering his life. Um, and also I believed in him as in his work and I, I, we had, we had some really great collectors. So it always made the process really fun. So I've had moments like that in, in the, in the industry where I'm like, why doesn't everyone sell art? You know, I hang out with my friends and we all make great money and then we all go to dinner. But then I remember during the 2008 recession where overnight within two months, my income just collapsed by 60%. No one was buying artwork. That was for sure. And um, that's when I, my brain would rubber band to, oh, I wish I'd gone into IT like my brother. (laughs) So, but that was when I was really young. You have to look at uh, being an art dealer very much as kind of being a a realtor where you're not going to sell a house every day. So you have to make sure that you have a little bit of a cushion so you can weather those storms. Um, When I was at a gallery in Los Angeles, I think there was one year where I made 30% of my money for the whole year doing Shanghai Art Fair. And we just sold an incredible amount of artwork at that show. And it was a number of bronze works and um, paintings. And that was, that was my bread and butter for most of that year. It's just that show um, that it, it, it can be interesting in that regard. Um, 
but it, it can be really glamorous. It can be really fulfilling. And just like any industry, there, there's, there's that little dark twinge to it. So you just have to figure out how to forge a pathway in, an, in a world that you love that makes you feel fulfilled. So I already referenced, of course, um, Charlotte from Sex in the City as, you know, sort of, but I do think it seems like art dealers are kind of a, a popular um, profession to show in, you know, TV shows, maybe not so much um, films, but definitely it's, it's kind of one of those easily portrayed glamorous jobs. So given that, what are some of the misconceptions that you find people tend to have about your job? So actually, I was going to say, I think part of the reason why pop culture in Hollywood likes to put our world and our dealers out there is because of this, uh, this sense of mystery. I, I always say the art world is painted in gray. Um, that I, I think that adds to the allure because it's, there's sort of this mysteriousness and there's kind of an elitism associated with it because you're typically dealing with a very affluent crowd. Um, I would say sort of the misconceptions. I remember a friend said to me once that, oh, you just hang out in an air conditioned gallery su surrounded by beautiful art all day. And I found it quite offensive because, you know, doing an art negotiation can be really exhausting when you're talking several thousands of dollars and, you know, you have the artist in the gallery that you're trying to protect and represent dutifully. But, um, and because of the way things are represented in, in TV, I've had moments with collectors where they're like, I'll give you 50% cash right now. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so we'll just lose money on this. <laughs> because in, in typically for an ethical gallery, the margins are not that wide. So, you know, if, if a gallery is saying 50 to 75% off, I mean, that artwork is mass produced in China or Mexico. That's not, you know, I mean, if you think it's pretty and it's, it's a cheap price, like by all means, hang it in your home. But, you know, don't think that you're, propelling this young artist's career by because your your most galleries will have a 50 50 split with the artist maybe 40 60 depending on who has more power in the negotiations um it'll also vary depending on if the gallery is um headlining a lot of you know doing all of the framing for the artwork and all kinds of various things will come into play but you know you'll never be able to have the margins to where you can just slash these prices um, so I think that those would be kind of misconceptions. Um, I, I find myself talking so much at work that I will come home from work and I say I'm just out of words, where I just, I've spent the past six hours talking all day, every day to all sorts of folks that I want to sit at home and just <laughs> completely veg out, decompress. That's definitely the opposite of like the, you know, really um, quiet, almost silent art gallery where everyone is walking around and just staring at the artwork and then you know they they silently point to one and the person puts the sticker on it like that's not <laughs> it doesn't sound like that happens very often <laughs> I not quite to my experiences I mean I find um you know with 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 artwork because it's such a person-to-person -person transfer that a lot of it is just making sure everybody's having a good time because if if the individual likes the artwork has the space, has the funds, and believes in the artist and the gallery, well, then you're the only thing that can mess that up. You know, they, they, <laughs> so no it's pressure. Just, yeah. So it's just, it's just making sure that the process is really smooth and that everyone's having a really good time. And, um, 
I, I mean, where I work at now, because we have a relatively low price point, um, I find that I tend to just be a really pushy friend. <laughs> I'm like, you love it. You're on vacation. Just, just get it. You deserve it. You lived through a global pandemic. <laughs> Treat yourself. Yeah. Does it, I mean, it sounds like you're doing a lot of, I don't know, like contract negotiation as well. Like, do you have to have some idea of kind of like the ins and outs of, of contract law, or is that not so much something that you need to handle the details of? Well, fortunately, when I was doing that, I had assistance when it came to actually drawing up the contract. Um, most of mine was negotiating in a price with a collector. So um, uh, when I was running the gallery in Beverly Hills, we would get enormous um, number of patrons that would be coming from the Middle East. Because when it heats up over there, they would all fly out to the peninsula and Beverly Wilshire and just book up um, that part of Los Angeles. And so we would be negotiating you know, a 10 piece deal. So maybe it's in the low six figures and, you know, they're fighting me on price or wanting to get this and that. And so where I typically stood was I was trying to get the, them just a think logically, because in some cases you would have people asking for the stars, the sun and the moon. and <laughs> It just doesn't work like that. But where I was trying to push them up to a logical number or reasonable number where I could then bring it to my regional director or to the owner of the gallery and say, you know, this is the offer. This is what we're con our concessions are. Um, but it's fair. You know, it, it works in the gallery's favor. It works in their favor. So a lot of kind of being a, a middleman, especially if it was um, a collector who isn't very familiar with acquiring artwork. In many cases, they just don't realize how some of these things works. You know, when the artwork reaches customs in their country and depending on what the foreign duties are going to be, depending on what country it is. Um, I mean, there's some countries that I, I never sent any artwork to Brazil because Brazil has such incredible customs for luxury goods that, I mean, I'm sure I've had a lot of Brazilian clients taking posters on planes, <laughs> but I've never shipped any luxury goods to Brazil just because of their customs. Wow. Yeah. Again, it's like, um, I mean, they're just like details. You mentioned kind of being a realtor and it definitely has like that attention to detail. It sounds like that I wouldn't have thought you would need in, in this position. So what, um, I guess what are, we've talked a little bit about the surprises. Um, what are then like the coolest and the most tedious parts of your job? Oh, tedious would be setting up for the art fairs where you just have a lot of really heavy, really expensive, really delicate things that you're having to hang on walls or put on pedestals. And you're typically in a time crunch. And so you're just trying to get everything done. And then you maybe have 30 minutes to shower up, put on a suit and tie, and then be ready to put on jazz hands for everybody coming into the booth. So the, the art fairs were always just incredibly brutal and exhausting. Um, a lot of really nice dinners. I've been I've been to some really really nice dinners because <laughs> you you'll take collectors out. So um, after the show, you'll take a lot of your big collectors out, and so I've been very fortunate to have ate at some of the best restaurants in Miami and Los Angeles and Shanghai. And so that was, I would definitely say that was some silver linings. <laughs> I like food. <laughs> Well, and I have to say, so my like one experience kind of brush with the art world was actually, I 
was working in Miami for a luxury lifestyle PR company. And one of our clients was a restaurant that did that, I guess, um, sponsored some street artists to do um, a show at Art Basel, Miami Beach. Mm-hmm. And I like I didn't work directly with those clients, but one of my coworkers was. And so I kind of like saw it a little bit through her eyes. And yeah, I mean, it was it just seemed very um I mean, she definitely had to do a lot of the details of like plane itineraries and making sure that, um, you know, jet lag wasn't an issue for the artists coming in from Japan and that there were translators for the Brazilian artist and all of those very like day-to-day logistical things. Um, But above that, so that was kind of, you know, the sausage making of the PR part. Um, But above that, above the the waves of of that, um, it looked really glamorous and fun for sure. I feel like it, um, has debunked a lot of conspiracy theories in that I've sort of rubbed shoulders with some of these very large individuals. So I've like worked with a senator or worked with a particular billionaire. And so I'll kind of hear a conspiracy theory. And I'm like, no, he's, he's not that bright. <laughs> <laughs> not naming names. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just... You know, it's it, it, the art world has taught me a couple things where money and power, everybody has the same eccentricities and neuroses. And, you know, some people just have them in fancier cars and have them in fancier homes. Um, and also that fame is really relative because especially in the art world, there's various artists that are incredibly famous to this little niche of the population. So, um or I've, I'm, I'm not the biggest sports person, so I've worked with a couple fancy um, like football players or something. And other than the fact that I know they're quite nice and um, are interested in the artwork, I never got, I don't know, a little starstruck. I'm trying to think of someone who maybe I worked with that I did find a little starstruck. Judge Judy, that was, that was kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of okay. a fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, I could see. Um, she seems like she'd be a great conversationalist. You know, a little sassy. She's quite decisive. She makes decisions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So you get to just see that, like you said, famous people are still people, just like the rest of us. <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So. One of my questions is, um, what are the biggest differences that you see between doing this as a hobby and doing it as a job? Is Would you say that kind of dealing in art is something people can do really as a hobby or is it really purely professional? I mean, I think you can do it as a hobby. It probably is more fun if you don't have that financial aspect sort of hanging over your head Um, because it is quite frustrating where you know, especially in the beginning when I was a young dealer, um, I'd be working with a client and it would be this very lighthearted decision to them, but whether or not I was paying rent hinged on this decision. So something that was quite a little purchase to some individuals, you know, my commission off it was really quite, and so that could be a little frustrating where you're working with a client and you know, you're trying to be effervescent, but at the same time, you're like, oh my goodness, I really need this to go through. <laughs> um, I think as I got 
more uh, more seasoned in the industry, it just becomes a numbers game. And so you just have to make sure that you're kind of operating like a robot and you're hitting all your clients and you're never going to force someone to like something they don't like, especially because artwork is so particular. So I find that if you're doing it as a profession, you, you know, you really have to work quite diligently and, you know, not be afraid of calling people out of the blue and not be afraid of talking to strangers. Um, I remember years back, I worked with this young woman, so incredibly knowledgeable, more knowledgeable in artwork than I ever will be. She is an incredible talent. However, she said to me, you know, Chris, I just, I don't like talking to strangers. And I'm like, that's the job. That's the job. <laughs> you know, and most of the time your clients don't care what the name of this brushstroke is or what the meaning behind this movement, you know, more often than not, they just want to know, you know, do they love it? Do they believe in the artist? Do they believe in you? Um, and, and, you know, things will go from there. But what I, what I do love about artwork is it's because it's such a personal connection that you feel like you get to know people really well. I've made such incredible friends through this industry, um, you know, lifelong friends that have been collectors and that are artists. And um, it just, it's a, it's a really beautiful industry. And I actually, one thing I would implore folks that don't consider themselves knowledgeable in artwork is you, you don't have to, like you don't have to read a whole encyclopedia on it just go to the museum and just look at pieces. I say, if it's speaking to you, listen. If it's singing to you, buy it. <laughs> because artwork- I will really love that. <laughs> and artwork will haunt you. I have clients that talk about works of art they saw seven years ago or 10 years ago that they wish they had gotten. And, um, you know, I don't, I've never heard anyone talk about a pair of shoes or a car that, well, I don't know. I guess maybe I've heard people talk about cars that way. Do you want to be featured on an episode of My Dilettante Life? Record yourself, starting with the phrase, when I grow up, I want to be a, and ending with your dream job. You might hear your own voice on a future episode. No age limits apply. That's interesting because, you know, it's at its heart, these relationships you have with people at their start are financial. I mean, they're business relationships. And so it's really... Wonderful to hear that that can develop into really, um, you know, kind of beyond the business into personal connections, because I feel like so often it's it's hard for people to kind of see beyond that economic or financial connection. So it's really wonderful you're, that you can form something beyond that. Oh, I, I, I definitely have, have, I definitely feel very blessed with um, how my career had progressed because I... I was really lucky, I think, to kind of just have been headstrong, where I just boldly and blindly would, would throw myself at some of um, the biggest galleries I could find in town. Um, usually I would start attending their shows so that I could meet everyone who worked there before I applied um, and meet the artist and everyone. So I was, I tried, I was a little bit methodical about it. But um, I, I never ended up graduating college. I, my college experience got interrupted due to Katrina and I just all of a sudden found myself in a situation where I needed to provide for myself. And I was very fortunate that I was able to um, uh, enter that industry and, and also uh, do well at it. 
Would you say that you see yourself as an expert in art dealing? Um, I would say, I mean, definitely more knowledge, more knowledgeable than others. I don't know if I would want to go so far as to say an expert, especially because the industry is so large. So I, I only barely dabbled in the art auction end of the art world. And so I would love to, you know, really get an in-depth behind the scenes of a Christie's or a Sotheby's because that was an aspect of the art world that I really hadn't dabbled in. Um, you know, artwork, it's, it's, it's such a strange asset because it's part of the reason why it's so easy to move money with it is because it's really easy to say that, oh, I paid that price for it because I love it that much, that I, I believe it's worth that much to me. And then over time, artwork um, collects a historical context to it, which also adds to, to its own weird je ne sais quoi. Like, I always love to talk about the Rockefeller Rothkos, where there were these two Rothko paintings that went up at auction and they shattered all kinds of these enormous Rothko and art, contemporary art record and then auction records. But what ended up happening was two oil barons got into a bidding war over these Rockefellers or these Rothkos. Now, were they buying them because they were so moved by Rothko? No, they were buying them because they were John D. Rockefeller's Rothkos. And so if you're an oil baron, how much, you know, of course you have to own one of the ultimate oil baron's paintings. And it's just interesting that artwork will, over time, it, it becomes bigger than just being a painting or just being a Rothko um, because of all those that, that touched it beforehand, you know, with the Mona Lisa hanging on Napoleon's bedroom wall. And then when it got stolen, everybody suspected that Pablo Picasso was the one that stole it. And so having all of these big names associated with this piece ends to that mystique or, or adds to that mystique and adds to um, all of that kind of romance that falls in, in the art world. And it's, it's fun to be a part of. <laughs> Um, I know this is probably the opposite of what the artist intended, but I actually saw the Banksy um, artwork that only halfway shredded. Mm -hmm. um, and that, yeah, like talk about, so Mystique for sure. And oh, and the like, buyer, my, the buyer was probably loving it. The buyer was probably yeah. loving it. They're like, yes, <laughs> yes, this is the best thing that could happen to my work of art. Yeah, and such notoriety. I mean, everyone yeah. knows that story and it's still, you know, a work of art in and of itself. Like it's still oh, all yeah. together it, and it's um, nothing else. There's nothing else like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, it'll, e even if it had shredded in its entirety, they still would find a way to exhibit it and display it and it'll tour the world. Um, yeah. So that, definitely an interesting moment in art history. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um. What would you tell someone who is looking to go into, um, yeah, art galleries, art dealing in general these days? You know, it's, it's, it is a hard industry. Um, more galleries close every year than open. So it's, it's a shrinking industry. And I think a lot of that is a reflection on the economy in America where the middle class is shrinking. And so in the art world, galleries are having to choose whether they go really, really high end or if they go really, really low end. And so you don't have as many um, galleries that are really 
speaking to that middle audience, which I, I think is, is, you know, terrible, but these galleries are trying to survive. Um, it's definitely a, a, I do feel like it's a labor of love because um, it, it can be a very taxing world to be in um, because it's a lot of people, there's a lot of drama, a lot of drama, a lot of galleries sniping artists or galleries sniping collectors or artists leaving galleries and, you know, which probably also ends itself well to Hollywood because there definitely is a lot of drama in our world. Um, but it can, it can really be fulfilling. I, I would say, oh, it's so funny because although I'm still in the art world, I've thought about leaving so many times. Um, it, it, it just, I would say approach it like a business, um, but just make sure that it, you know, it's, that it's a passion. Cause when you, with your work, you spend more time with your coworkers than you do with your family members. And so, um, and definitely make sure you like people because you're going to have to talk to a lot of people. <laughs> so you said you've thought um, about leaving the art world professionally. So what would you do if you weren't an art dealer? Um, actually, oddly enough, a lot of my old uh, colleagues who were successful art dealers are now successful realtors. And so I've had a lot of pressure to move into real estate, um, which I don't know. I've maybe dipped my toe in it, but I'm still, I'm, I'm still solidly associated with in the art world. So I, I guess I'll continue to ride the wave while I, while I'm on it. So is realtor like though kind of a pipe dream or do you have another thing that maybe when you were younger, um, you were, you always thought, Oh, I, I might do that. Um, you know, I actually never, when I was really young, I wanted to be a ninja. And I remember telling my mom that, and she goes, well, I don't know if there's any colleges where you can, you know, train to be a ninja. And I said, well, of course, mom, they're all in Japan. <laughs> but I never, there was no profession that I can think of that I truly, you know, actually initially when I went to college, I was going to go into psychiatry. Um, so I, I had a, a major in psychology and a minor in art history, which is, which I never, but it, it is kind of interesting that where I ended up there's still both fields that are very much um, focused on forming connection and rapport with people and understanding human behavior and decision-making. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the other thing is I'm, I've been a little bit tempted to branch out on my own and open my own gallery, but that sort of diving like full on, I talk about leaving the industry and I'm like, well, oh, that's the opposite. <laughs> that's grabbing the reins tighter. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, definitely. If that happens, you'll have to um, definitely let us know, you know, um, the name and, and any of the um, pertinent information for people listening to the show who want to find out where to find you. Yeah, so, you have to fly out to the opening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so my last question is, um, what do you want to be asked about your career as an art dealer? Oh, that is a very good question. Yeah, I mean, I guess I was going to say something to the effect of like, how to be successful, but we sort of touched on that throughout where I, you know, a lot of it is just building those strong connections with your collectors and your artists and, um, and follow through, follow up, you know, it's all about correspondence and just making sure that everybody knows you're still there and knows that you have, you know, beautiful art on the wall and that they need to stop by and take a look at it again. <laughs> 
Um, I, oh, actually one, one other question. Do you, um, do you find like certain media more you're up your alley than others? Like are paintings really your thing and you really don't do sculpture or. You know, I think a lot of it, it kind of goes back to where I, I said, um, you know, with artwork, you just need to be exposed to more art where initially I definitely had my bias and would lean heavily towards various genres, but I've, my tastes have really, really broadened as I've been exposed to um, just a lot of d diverse styles. One of my favorite artists right now is Petra Cartwright, and um, she does digital works. And I initially, I was very eh on digital artwork, but now I feel like not only is there a place for it, but I, I think it's going to be um, a really powerful medium in the future. And I think you're going to see a lot of artists where they're creating their artworks in computer where with Petra she does her painting in computer and then it's printed at one time so it's a one of one it's an original work of art but it initially was done in a computer so I find that interesting uh, the LA artist Brett Easterbrock um, I, I find really exciting he does a lot of these really textured I love textured uh, works of art and does um, paintings of stuffed animals and he has a really interesting uh, use of color and he explores a really interesting color palette. Um, that, you know, it, I just, it, it, it's constantly shifting. I do feel like photography is a bubble because as, as technology, and this is coming from someone who a big chunk of my career was representing a photographer. Um, I just feel as technology progresses, um, more and more people will be able to take these really high resolution photographs that can be done in these fantastic sizes. And I think the competition will just be too steep to sustain some of these um, artists that are doing these like large format photography. Interesting. Yeah. I just think about like taking uh, the photography class at our high school and learning how to like develop film and dodge, you know, negative exposures and how all of that is, I mean, there are still people who do mm -hmm. film, but um, it's just such a different world with digital photography um, and the technologies that you're talking about. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for talking with me, for sharing a little bit about your experience. Um, I really appreciate you giving us a peek into the world of, of art dealing. Of course. Thank you for thinking of me. And I hope um, to anyone listening that I gave at least a little bit of tidbit that was either interesting or useful. When I grow up, I want to be an international art theft investigator. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of My Dilettante Life. I'm your host, Hannah Binder. The podcast theme music was composed by Anna Bradley, with sound editing assistance from Yuli Anerson. The podcast logo was designed by Ashley Burke with help from model Ivy Bean. Thanks to our guests and to all our listeners for tuning in. If you have follow-up questions for a guest, send them in for a chance to be featured on an upcoming Audience Asks segment. My Dilettante Life is available wherever you get your podcasts, as well as directly at hannabinder.com slash mydilettantelife. That's H-A-N-A-B-I-N-D-E-R dot com slash my dash dilettante dash life. Tschüss!